0: Merry Christmas, Regen. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the elders here.
1: Hello, my name's Andrea, and I'm Nathan's wife. I'm also the crafter behind the Regen Surveys. So tagging on to Steph's announcement, don't forget to fill out the end of the year survey. We want to hear from you.
0: So today, as you can see, we are co-teaching. And I just want to say, in case uh, you weren't aware, sermon prep is really hard work. Uh, My dad was a pastor, so I grew up around this. Uh, and I actually did this a couple years ago. But even so, just doing it again this time, it's really tough. And add to that the decision uh, for us to do this together while juggling parenting and full-time jobs. And shall we say it's, it's been a true test of marital partnership. So thank God for his steadfast love and for his mercies. Amen. <laughs> uh,
1: this week we'll be focusing on Jesus, the Son of Man a title that identified him with all humanity, male and female. But it was much more than that, as, well, we'll see. Our primary passage for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 59 to 66. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death.
0: Let's pray, church. Lord, I ask that as... Uh, Your word is taught this morning uh, that your spirit would make of it uh, what you will. Lord, that anything that is is not of you would fall away and anything that is of you, that it would fall on fertile soil, Lord, and take root. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you came to earth as the son of man to redeem many. Father, would you uh, allow your word to, to instruct us, to nourish us. To convict us, would we have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord? I pray all of this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: Um, Part one, rediscovering the light. Maybe you find it interesting to center a Christmas message on this passage. Jesus here is being questioned by Caiaphas, the high priest, who for some time has sought a reason to end the life and the movement of this traveling rabbi. Why talk about this part of the story when tis the season for Mary and Joseph and nativity scenes? Here's the reason. Jesus, the son of man, his advent, that is his arrival, and his sacrifice for us will mean so much more if we understand who he really is, who he was born to be. If the advent season is about anticipation and preparation, who are we expecting? It's a constant temptation for us to recreate Jesus in our own image, to project our own ideas and values and culture onto him, whether that's turning a dark-skinned first-century Jew into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian man, or someone who frets and worries like I do about student loans, juggling work, family, church responsibilities,
0: So what I worry about sometimes is that we have an imaginary friend approach to Jesus because we don't let Jesus be who he is on his own terms. We make a caricature of him that suits our whims and who won't rock our boat too much. So many of us have actually ceased to allow Jesus to surprise us, to be radically different from us, to assert his identity into our worlds. So then if we're to move past that into something greater, if we're to let the real Jesus arrive into our world this Christmas, whether for the first time ever or returning like a beloved friend whose memory has begun to fade in our minds. I guess we're left with a hugely important question. Who did Jesus claim to be? Who, during his approximately 33 years in first century Palestine, did he reveal himself to be? Soren Kierkegaard once told a story of this wealthy man who's traveling On a dark night by carriage and he has lanterns turned on to keep the inside of the carriage lit and to that man this warmth and the light of the inside of his carriage represented comfort and safety the darkness was kept at bay but Kierkegaard says it's precisely because he has the lanterns lit and has a strong light close to him that he can't see the stars His own lights obscure the glorious panorama outside. His eyes are unable to take in the great wondrous beauty of truth, while any poor peasant traveling down that same road, driving without lights, can see gloriously in that dark and starry night. Church, our hope in this sermon is that your hearts would be filled with wonder and amazement, that you would seek the greater light and see a fuller picture of Jesus. As we recently heard in Ephesians, that you would receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him as we listen to the words of Jesus about who he is.
1: So imagine living in Galilee some 2,000 years ago. You're an average Jewish citizen living in a village, and you hear of an up-and-coming figure who's passing through town, teaching and speaking with authority. Matthew tells us, not like the teachers of the law and performing miracles, unlike any that had been seen. What categories would have been available for understanding what was going on? How would you have understood who this man was? N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, in their book, The New Testament and Its World, explained the conundrum that they faced. The problem was that Jesus acted and spoke like a lot of different leadership types. A rabbi, prophet, healer, priest sage, royal leader, exorcist, cynic philosopher, and miracle worker. Yet he was also unlike any of them.
0: Jesus was the platypus of public figure types of his day. A bit of everything mixed into one category-defying package. Side note, did you know that apart from the whole build furry mammal egg-laying thing that they have going on, they're also venomous? Uh, They can detect electrical fields to hunt their prey by using sensors in their bills. They have no stomachs, and that they glow bluish green under black light. Pretty crazy, right? But Jesus was something like that. He was an enigma to the people of his time, someone they didn't know what to make of.
1: Have you ever gone and taken a look at what Jesus chooses to call himself throughout the Gospels? The term that we most often associate with Jesus, and one that much of the New Testament uses, is Messiah, or the Greek version of the same title, Christ. But that's actually not what Jesus preferred to call himself. Jesus adopted another title, a surprising, loaded, explosive title to refer to himself, the Son of Man. Why would he do that? It's a title he uses more than any other, In the four Gospels combined, it's a bit of a surprise to see how little Jesus actually called himself Messiah. It occurs only 11 times, and usually behind closed doors and with an air of secrecy. He refers to himself as the Son of God, another key title, only five times, and Son of David just once. Compare that with the Son of Man. More than any other title, description, role, Jesus calls himself that 72 times in the Gospel. Interestingly, it's not used by anyone else to describe him.
0: Part two, who is the son of man? I don't know if you're like me, but when I first learned this, my mind was a little bit blown. I felt a bit like learning in middle school that things like sound and color don't really exist outside of our brains, that what our senses detect are squiggly air and radiation that get translated into Mozart and into sunsets. It changes your fundamental understanding. Of the world when you understand why Jesus called himself the Son of Man. It's like a key to understanding what's happening in the Bible a bit differently, all the way from Genesis through to Revelation. So let's jump in on it. Son of Man, what is really going on here with that phrase? Who is it that Jesus is claiming to be when he talks that way? The people who heard Jesus speak were asking the same thing, but they had a shared cultural tradition to draw upon. Most of us, when we hear something like son of man, probably think of it as a way of saying descended from man or the offspring of a man. And while it can be used that way, as in Silas, son of Nathan, or Nathan, son of Bob, it isn't the only way that son of man works in the Bible. It can often refer to a class or a category of something. Like when Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings are training a group of prophetic disciples, they're called the sons of the prophet. They aren't the children of these two guys. They are just young members in this class, in this category of prophets. The phrase son of man in Hebrew is ben adam. It can simply mean human being, but it's not referring to a singular male here. It's a Hebrew idiom that means one of the class of human, a human one. The book of Ezekiel uses son of man this way when referring to Ezekiel in a way that basically is like calling him mere mortal. So, in that way, Ben Adam, son of man, can be a stand in for humanity in a, a really general sense. But is that what Jesus is trying to say about himself? That he's a regular old Joshmo like the rest of us?
1: Well, in a sense, yes. He was affirming his own humanity and describing himself that way. But also, no, there's more to it. There are deeper layers of meaning that the Jewish hearers of the phrase would have latched onto. When Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jews heard the phrase, Son of Man, there would have been a clear set of associations. The phrase, Son of Man, and the way Jesus alludes to it on multiple occasions throughout his ministry would almost certainly have caused the minds of culturally Jewish listeners to jump straight back to a specific book of the Bible and a specific chapter of that book, Daniel chapter 7. Think of it in our culture like a movie that almost everyone's seen. It's a part of our culture And just by referencing a piece of it, you probably know exactly what movie I'm talking about and what the story is. I could say, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And it would call to your mind a story of ruby slippers, a scarecrow, and Dorothy traveling down the yellow brick road. Most of us are familiar with The Wizard of Oz.
0: Or I could say, may the force be with you. And immediately your mind would jump to Jedi's, and Sith, and Death Stars, and Millennium Falcons. So ingrained in our consciousness are these stories, these cultural touchstones.
1: And so it was with the people of Jesus' time. When they heard the phrase, son of man, in the way that Jesus used it, they weren't thinking, okay, he seems to have a fondness for calling himself human for some reason. They would immediately go to Daniel and the vision of the son of man that he describes in Daniel 7. Jesus calls himself the son of man who has authority, the son of man who has authority on earth, not only to heal but to forgive sins, he's pointing us back to something that his hearers were familiar with. Jesus' disciples are getting some food on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are watching and judging, saying, hold on, they're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus comes back with, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He enters into discussions with people, and he just comes out and says, the Son of Man has been given authority from the Father to create life and to execute judgment. That's how he explains why he just did what he did or said something he said, and it's a direct hearkening back to Daniel 7. So we studied this book and passage last year, but let us remind you of what's going on around the passage. Here we have Daniel, an Israelite, who had been carried off into exile in Babylon, the big empire of the time, and forced into service. Fast forward through Daniel interpreting dreams the writing on the wall, being thrown into a den of lions, and now we have Daniel being given a vision of his own in chapter 7, a vision that begins with beasts.
0: So you have this terrible sequence of mutant beasts rising up out of waters, and they symbolize kingdoms and empires that come one after another. Violent kingdoms that are terrible, that are ravaging the earth, And then the vision shifts from these violent beasts ruling the world to a set of thrones established in the heavens, over the earth. Note the plural here, thrones. The Ancient of Days, an image of the God of Israel, creator God, takes his seat on one of the thrones. And even that itself is a terrifying scene. God is on a throne of judgment. His clothing is as white as snow. His hair is as white as wool. His throne is ablaze with flames, and a river of fire is flowing out before him. God is presiding over a court of judgment. And the beasts who have ravaged God's creation are stripped of their power. And then Daniel narrates this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is going on here? In the passage, it seems like Daniel himself isn't too sure of what it is that he's seeing. There's this one like the Son of Man, this human figure. What can we tell about this human one in the passage? It says he came on the clouds of heaven. In the Bible, it's... God, who repeatedly is referenced, as the one who rides in on the clouds. You can take Psalm 68, verses 32 and 33. It says this, O kingdoms of earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Yet here it is in Daniel, a a human figure, riding on the clouds. This alone reveals that the Son of Man in this passage is something divine. In the context of Jewish monotheism, their strict belief in one God. This itself was super puzzling. You already have the Ancient of Days on the scene, seated on the throne, yet here comes this other divine figure coming in on the clouds. Daniel is seeing God in two persons. No wonder his Jewish sensibilities are troubled by this. The one like the Son of Man then proceeds to do God things. He judges the nations, he rules with eternal dominion, and has kingship over all people. Folks, we're back at platypuses and lantern lit carriages here. Daniel, and by extension Israel, is having this revelation that defies categories. It begs us to step outside the small limited carriages that we're traveling through life in, and open our eyes to something bigger and stranger and more poetic.
1: Now, before we go forward, It's important that we go backward to Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 1, in God's act of creation, we're told two vital things about who humans were created to be from the start that echo through the rest of the story of Scripture as what God is seeking to fulfill in humanity through his redemptive works. Chapter 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here are the two things. One, humans were designed by God to carry God's image. And two, to rule over all the beasts of the earth. We rarely talk about what being bearers of God's image means, and less so, talk about what it means for us to have rule and dominion over all the creatures of the earth. What it looks like is that God has a plan for humanity to be set apart as God's representatives on earth, partnering with God, receiving authority from Him to rule over the beasts and creation as God's image bearers. What happens two chapters later in Genesis? The fall. Instead of ruling over the beasts, Adam and Eve are deceived by a beast, the serpent, who tempts them with the prospect of ruling over creation apart from that partnership with God. It seems that things are not off to a great start. Instead of being set apart from beasts and ruling over them, humans are subjecting themselves to the beast's subhuman ways. We're told that Cain murders Abel, that sin, like a beast, is crouching at the door. Violence and ultimately death are what result when humans reject God's image and embrace beastliness. But what happens next never ceases to amaze. God immediately sets in motion a plan, a plan to restore humans as God's image bearers and overcome the beasts who have taken up rulership over them. And that plan involves a descendant of the woman doing what God intended for humans to do from the start. Speaking to the serpent who has deceived Adam and Eve, God says this in Genesis 3:15: "And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A descendant of the woman, a son of man, of the type or category of humanity will come who will crush the beasts and take humanity's rightful place of rulership." Are you hearing this prophecy echo through Scripture? Do you see what's happening here in Daniel 7 and later in Matthew?
0: Church, this is a profound act of divine poetry. I hope you have eyes to see and ears to hear this. In Genesis, humanity was made in the image of God to rule the beasts. But Adam and Eve failed. In Daniel 7, God appears in the image of humanity, one like the Son of Man, to rule over the beasts. And God succeeds Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man is a claim to his divinity, but it's also a specific claim that he alone will overcome the beasts. That is to say, both sin and the spiritual forces of evil and the earthly empires and rulers that are the vanguard of the beasts. Look at what Jesus did here. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms, but unlike every human before him, he resisted that urge. He went about banishing the beast from people's lives, And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. How do you rule the beast? By giving up your life. By dying. Let's look again at the passage that we opened with in Matthew 26. We'll just look at um, verses 63 and 64. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven." The high priest was trying to set a trap for Jesus. If Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, he could be accused of presenting himself as a political deliverer of Israel, who would defeat the Romans and liberate Israel, and could be executed as a political revolutionary. But Jesus refused to be caught in the priest's trap. The high priest asked Jesus to confirm whether he was Israel's political leader, but Jesus made a higher claim by referencing Daniel 7. He was not only Messiah. He was Israel's God. Yahweh made flesh. In saying so, he set the terms of his own execution. Many Jews at that time claimed to be Messiah, and many Gentile kings like Caesar claimed to be sons of God. But no one dared claim the divine title of the Son of Man. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, let's go. It's time for the pieces of Daniel 7 to fall into place. The cross is a beastly torture device. But for Jesus, this would be his throne. From this throne, he has purchased a liberation for the cosmos. For the sons of man and all of creation. We are not just saved from judgment by Jesus. We are saved by the judgment that fell upon Jesus. He took away the beast's power to hold us to the dead of our sins and our trespasses. By his sacrifice, he has set apart his kingdom people who will rule with him. Daniel 7 tells us of the people, the nations, the tongues that will serve him. These are those who have placed their trust in Jesus the Son of Man, those who will be spared from the judgment of the beasts and the beast followers. Church, Jesus' execution was his exaltation. He would return to the heavens where he had been before, exalted as God. But now he would do so as a man, securing for us the means of joining him there. There's still a judgment, let's be clear, that will come at the end of the age in which liberation that was won on the cross will be enforced. Judgment in our world today is a, is a heavy topic, and we're prone to picture an angry God when we talk about judgment, but we must remember that God's judgment brings salvation. It ends the corruption and violence and death, and in its place enables wholeness and peace and life.
1: Part three, anticipate, follow, and fall down. So what I'm hearing is that this Son of Man title was meant to insert Jesus into Daniel 7, a vision full of beasts, where one like the Son of Man rolls in late to the party, on clouds no less, to take his place in co-rulership and make things right. This knowledge begs for a response, to come to grips with this truth of Jesus' identity as the Son of Man Regen, we are called to anticipate, follow, and fall down. First, respond to the Son of Man by anticipating his return and hope.
0: In Luke 17, Jesus is asked when the kingdom of God would come. And he teaches his eager disciples who are asking him this uh, about his promise to come in power as the Son of Man. He says... And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Here's what Jesus knew at that time. He knew that he would ascend into heaven for a long period of time before his return, and that during his absence, his followers would have to endure and overcome a lot of difficulty as they waited for his return. He knew that the absence of the Son of Man combined with the rule of the beasts and their apparent success would cause the saints to lose heart. And so Jesus tells a parable. It says that he told them a parable that we ought always pray and not lose heart. And that's the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. In that story, a widow, one of the most vulnerable members of society at that time, repeatedly pleads for justice against her adversary to a judge who it says neither fears God nor respects man. Jesus uses this analogy because the apparent delay in God's justice and the deliverance combined with our vulnerability to suffering is going to test us, his followers, severely. We're told in the parable that the irreverent judge eventually decides to give her justice that she deserves simply because he grows weary of her continual pleading. And then Jesus ends with two questions for his hearers. Number one, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And the second, from the second half of verse eight, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This parable is for those of us who ask ourselves God, where are you? Why do you stand by and let injustice and suffering continue? The world around us is being ravaged by beasts. Racial injustice persists. Refugees are displaced around the world for longer periods of time and at greater numbers than ever before. Systems of inequity and inequality abound. This year, a million and a half people have died from a virus that was basically unknown before this. It's for those of us who are tempted to think God is unjust because of his apparent delay, who are discouraged when it seems humanity has been handed over to the beast. That's why he tells this parable. And the application of it is simple. People who have faith in the Son of Man should be like this widow, consistently crying out for justice, even though it doesn't seem like they have an advocate and that deliverance seems improbable. Faith and endurance will be necessary, but the Son of Man will come in response to faith and persistent prayer. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in you? Will he find you to be the ones who had been praying for his return? To believe in Jesus as the Son of Man is to anticipate the return of the divine human who will bring forth justice on the earth on that day. Church, are you longing for Jesus' return? How much of your heart space is actually filled with that desire? I say this to myself as much as I say it to all of you. Don't forget that our prayers are heard by the Son of Man and that he will respond to your faith and to your persistence. He will return. Anticipate it.
1: Second, respond to the Son of Man by following his way. Jesus is the new Adam, the new human, the prophesied Son of Man who fulfills God's plans for humanity, to bear God's image, and to rise above subhuman beastliness of sin. We are called to follow Jesus into a new way to be human, a way that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way, to rule the beast by giving up our life. Jesus resists individual temptations and spiritual evil down to the physical embodiment of that evil in the beastly empires through leadership with humility. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many personally following jesus and to becoming a servant is something i'm learning and relearning Uh, What I'll share with you about this season of discomfort is that it's been both exhausting and life-giving. It's not something I could ever figure out alone. And I'll say this, sending gratitude to our Zateo home group and the moms group as we reimagine this new way together. Lately, uh, my two-year-old son, or our two-year-old son, Silas, has been a big influence in my life, teaching me about leadership through humility. To be a parent is kingdom work, serving the lowly. Every morning, Silas reminds us of how we are his servants. He decides to wake up when he wants and calls out to us very loudly and persistently until one of us arrives. We pull him out of his crib, and he begins commanding us around. Make a waffle. (laughs) I want fruit. This is a metaphor of how the strong, or usually feeling strong, serve the weak. In what areas are you exercising your strength to serve the weak? Jesus is inviting us into living out this upside-down kingdom, Here and now, there are layers to our individual actions, our personal decisions that ripple out into the spiritual realm, our physical communities, and follow behind us for generations. The fall did that, so we can't deny it. To follow Jesus means to begin a new pattern of life. Let me warn you it's going to feel uncomfortable. To resist the beastly empire's offer for sustenance, for comfort and power is a constant struggle. And this is not a call to misery or a masochistist worldview. It's the love of a glorious future and inheritance that is so great that by comparison, the things that matter to life in this world, property, career, romance, are as nothing. Are you following Jesus in this new way of living? Lastly, fall down. Back in 1994, some of you might have been alive at this time, uh, there was a 6.7 magnitude earthquake that rocked LA at 4.30 in the morning. I was 50 miles from the epicenter, and I slept right through it. But LA was shaken up, it caused a citywide power outage. And this was before folks could jump on Twitter, Google, Facebook to validate the tremors. Residents reported walking outside to look out at the damage, and upon looking up at the sky, in fear, they called 911. What was that huge silvery cloud over the city? Urban people were seeing the Milky Way for the first time ever and in fear, they were calling authorities. So I share this not as a warning against light pollution, though if you haven't seen the Milky Way before, it is a sight to behold. (laughs) This illustration is to point out that a glimpse of the vastness of God is scary. God can't be contained and it's troubling. Daniel repeatedly wrote how God, how troubled he became by his vision, to the point that his face became pale. When Gabriel, also from Daniel, told Mary that she would give birth to the Son of the Most High, Mary's first reaction was to be troubled. God is like that egg-laying mammal, the duck-billed platypus. Yes, I'm bringing back that poisonous ankle spur wielding category defying creature. The Son of Man is the divine human and he is glorious. When we acknowledge him and believe what he says about himself, when we see his glory, there are few options left but to fall down in submission and reverence.
0: Part four. Merry Christmas. I'll say it again. Merry Christmas, everyone. The divine human, the Son of Man, is with us. He rules the world in truth and grace. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We celebrate his arrival and anticipate his return. Let's pray. Lord, would that we would come and adore you for who you truly are. Son of man, would you arrive in our lives this Christmas? Would we recognize your holiness, your gloriousness, Lord? And in so doing, Lord, would we anticipate your return to judge the earth, and set things right? Would we follow you in all of your ways? And would we fall down, prostrate before you? Because that's the only appropriate response when we truly see you. Lord, would you uh, rid us of our, our temptation to make you in our image? And instead, Lord, would we adopt the image that you've created us to bear? This Christmas, Lord, would we welcome you into our world, anew or for the first time. I pray this in your name, amen. Scripture tells us of the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified. The execution that was his exaltation as the Son of Man. Now as they were eating, it says, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. Through his body and through his blood, we have communion with the Most High. Let us do this now in in remembrance of what he has done, and in so doing, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes on the clouds of heaven. Let us take communion together then.